We do continue our series, uh, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Read, hear, take to heart. And today we finally come to the exciting stuff in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, So far, uh, as we've gone through this series, we've looked as John has described the last days, the whole period between Christ's first coming and his return at the end of history, and he's done so from various angles and in varying amounts of detail. Uh, We've covered an awful lot of ground over the past several months, beasts and dragons and locusts and plagues and trumpets, and well done to those of you who've stuck it out and kept up. But now in these final two chapters, John moves beyond the last days and looks into the future. He describes for us our eternal home, the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Now, I said that this is exciting stuff, but sadly for many people, a discussion of heaven and maybe even of these chapters are less than thrilling. Uh, An English vicar was once asked by a colleague what he expected after death. And the vicar replied, well, if it comes to that, I suppose I shall enter into eternal bliss. But I really wish you wouldn't bring up such depressing subjects. (laughs) The filmmaker Woody Allen once said, existence for eternity could get a little boring, especially towards the end. In one of his Far Side cartoons, Gary Larson captures something of the popular idea of heaven. And uh, in the cartoon, you have a man with angel wings and a halo sitting alone on a cloud, staring into space, thinking, I wish I'd brought a magazine. But far more tragically, I, I heard recently about a lady who said to her pastor, I've been a Christian since I was five. I'm married to a youth pastor. When I was seven, a teacher at my Christian school told me that when I get to heaven, I wouldn't know anyone or anything from earth. And I was terrified of dying. I was never told any different by anyone. It's really been hard for me to advance in my Christian walk because of this fear of heaven and eternal life. What what tragic words, fear of heaven. And yet, how many Christians don't secretly harbor some kind of fear? My real prayer for the next two weeks as we study these chapters is that we'll experience a growing excitement about our eternal home and the one who is there waiting for us. And that that vision would then radically change how we live and think and act right here and now. This past week, I've been working my way through a book by an American writer called Randy Alcorn, simply entitled Heaven. And while I don't necessarily agree with everything he writes, I can say that while I'm only a third of the way into the book, already I want to go to heaven. It's the only book I've ever read on heaven that makes me actually want to go there. And I mention that because as I've read this book, I've realized uh, that a lot of the book has entered the sermon this morning. So if you ever do read the book and you think, wow, this writer is quoting Andrew, it is in fact the other way around. (laughs) 
As I said, there's too much in Revelation 21 and 22 to deal with in one sermon, so I'll do my usual deal with you. I promise to preach shorter today if you promise to come back for part two next week. Now, we did read some of Revelation chapter 21 last week, and I'm hoping to look at uh, all of chapter 21 and 22 next week. So today I'm just going to read the first part and the last part of Revelation chapter 21. We're going to have a look at Revelation chapter, chapter 21, verses 1 to 5, and then verses 23 to 25. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and women, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Verse 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter into it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is God's word. This morning I'd, I'd like to focus our attention on just one important phrase. John begins in verse 1 by saying, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. Do you notice then how Revelation chapter 21 bookends Genesis chapter 1? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And now in the Revelation 21 we read about the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. In his commentary on these verses, Pastor Eugene Peterson says this, The biblical story begins quite logically with a beginning. Now it draws to an end not quite so logically also with a beginning. The sin-ruined creation of Genesis is restored in the sacrifice-renewed creation of Revelation. The story that has creation for its first word has creation for its last word. I'd like to point out uh, two important things about the new heaven and the new earth before looking at two important implications to our own lives. Firstly, I'd like us to look at renewal. Remember very importantly that at the end of Genesis 1, that first account of creation, we read that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. 
And God has not abandoned that belief. Yes, we read in Genesis 3 that sin has spoiled and marred this world so that none of it looks the way that it was intended to look. As we read a moment ago, there are tears and death and mourning and crying and pain in the world that were not there before. But nowhere do we read that God has given up on the heavens and the earth. If God had wanted to burn everything up and start with something completely new and different, then he would have done so immediately after Adam and Eve had sinned. But no, his plan is not to discard the present heavens and the earth, but rather to renew them. Notice what the Lord Jesus says in chapter 21 and verse 5. I am making everything new. Or more literally, behold, I make all things new. Jesus doesn't say, behold, I make all new things, but I make all things new. He's not promising to make something altogether new, but to make all the things he has already made new, to renew or to regenerate them. So in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is speaking with his disciples about the cost of discipleship. And the disciple Peter, being the quiet, shy, self-effacing man that he was, says to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for you, for us in your new kingdom? And Jesus replies, truly I tell you that at the renewal of all things, When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus doesn't say after the destruction of all things or after the abandonment of all things, but rather at the renewal of all things. In the same way, in Acts chapter 3, after Peter and John have healed a lame man, Peter preaches to the crowd and he speaks about the work of Jesus on earth. And then he says this, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Do you remember in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Uh, We read how the white witch, who represents the devil, uh, has usurped the throne of Narnia. She's taken the beautiful land of Narnia and made it into a bitter land of ice and snow. Always winter, but never Christmas. And the inhabitants of Narnia long for Aslan, the rightful ruler, to appear because only he can set the world right again. And he does appear, and the snow and the ice melt. Spring comes, but only after he has died a redemptive death on the stone table. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. 
All that's to say that God is not going to destroy the present heaven and present earth and start again with something completely different somewhere else. No, the Bible speaks about renewal, restoration. But let's look secondly at continuity and discontinuity. The new heavens and the new earth are going to be related to the present heavens and the present earth, related but not identical. There will be elements of continuity and discontinuity. And while this might be difficult for us to imagine, the New Testament does in fact give us two pictures or precedents for this. So think firstly of Christian conversion. What happens when we first become followers of the Lord Jesus? Well, the Apostle Paul describes it this way in Galatians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. It's a startling picture of what Christian conversion looks like. But when I became a Christian, although I was born again, although there was this new creation, uh, the old was, there was some continuity with the old. I didn't become a completely different person. I didn't walk into the kitchen and have my mom say, who are you? Uh, there, there were some significant changes, but I remained Andrew. While we become new people, we're still the same people. Well, think secondly of what the Bible says about our future resurrection bodies. The New Testament speaks about the fact that when we die, you and I will receive a resurrected body that has some continuity with our present body and some discontinuity with this body. It'll be a physical body, but it will be a changed body. And we get the best idea of what this looks like from looking at the resurrected body of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had a physical body that could be handled and touched. He specifically says to his disciples, touch me and see, I'm not a ghost. Our resurrected bodies are not some spirit somewhere. He had a physical body. He could have breakfast with his disciples on the beach and eat and drink with them. But at the same time, there were some aspects that were different. Sometimes the disciples thought, is that really Jesus or is it not? He could appear and disappear at will. He could enter a locked room without having to knock. So these two pictures of the new creation, the new birth of Christians, and our future resurrected bodies shed some light on the idea of the new heavens and the new earth. Pastor John Stott writes this in his commentary on Revelation. Our Christian hope looks forward not to an ethereal heaven, but to a renewed universe related to the present world by both continuity and discontinuity. Just as the individual Christian is a new creation in Christ, the same person but transformed, and just as the resurrection body will be the same body with its identity intact, yet invested with new powers, so the new heaven and the new earth will not be a replacement universe, as if created out of nothing, but a regenerated universe, purged of all present imperfection, with no more pain, sin, or death. And we see that here in Revelation 21. We see the continuity 
And in fact, the very phrase, the new earth, shows continuity with this earth. John doesn't write, then I saw something that I've never seen in my life before. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. We know what this earth is like. Rivers, trees, mountains. John will mention these very things in chapter 22. John also describes a new city. Again, we know what cities are like. They have buildings and culture and art and music and athletics and services and events. Cities have people engaged in activities, gatherings, conversations, eating, drinking, work. In terms of continuity, have a look again at verses 24 and 26. Speaking of the new Jerusalem, John says, The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. The things that we've loved here on earth, those good gifts that God has given to us, those things that, as Paul puts it in Philippians 4, are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy will still be there in the new earth. The final words of the deaf composer Ludwig von Beethoven were, I shall hear in heaven. I'm sure that I shall hear Beethoven in heaven, and Bach and Handel, see the works of Rembrandt and Van Gogh, enjoy the writings of numerous authors whom I haven't got around to yet. Yes, much of the imaginativeness and industriousness of mankind has become twisted. But the Bible pictures a restoration, the removal of every sinful impurity, and the retaining of all that is holy and good. And that's where the discontinuity comes in. Uh, no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Nothing impure will ever enter it. A regenerated universe purged of sin and imperfection. And I'm guessing that there'll be other discontinuities too. I'm guessing that the new, new earth is going to have to be a lot bigger to accommodate all of us. It'll be more beautiful, more magnificent than the present earth. I'm not sure of everything. <laughs> we'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> now, we've wandered around a bit in looking at this phrase, the new heavens and the new earth. But I think the main point to grasp from all that we've looked at is this, that God promises to those who love him, to you and me, a resurrected life in a resurrected body with the resurrected Lord Jesus on a resurrected earth. And what does that mean for us right here and now? Probably a number of implications and applications, but let me highlight two that I think are important and topical. Firstly, the concept of the new heavens and the new earth has implications for Christian ministry, for our work for the Lord Jesus right here and now. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You know, if the kings of the earth bring their splendor into the new Jerusalem, how much more do we not bring in our labor for the Lord? 
Our sermons, our Sunday school lessons, conversations with non-Christians, missionary endeavors, where we spend our time and our money giving to Christian expansion. Now, there are two equal and opposite errors that we can make with regards to our laboring for the Lord in relation to the new heavens and the new earth. And I mentioned these when we looked at theories of the millennium. The first is pessimistic passivity. Uh, so we read, for example, in Second Peter 3, that on the day of the Lord, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And it leads us to believe that nothing we do on earth really matters. What's the point of recycling or making beautiful parks or working for justice or trying to transform a squatter camp? Everything is just going to be destroyed anyway. It's only human souls that matter. But that's an error, as we've seen. The second error is optimistic triumphalism. The idea that we have dominion on earth now, that as believers we have to bring God's kingdom on earth almost forcibly. But notice that twice in this passage we're specifically told that the new, new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God. As one Bible commentator puts it, these words speak a very humbling word to us. The city of the future is not our doing. It is God's doing. We humans did not form the first creation, and we do not form the new creation. It's a gift of grace, something we could never conceive or build ourselves. I think this is yet another case of us as believers having to hold two opposite truths together at the same time. And perhaps the solution lies in what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In this chapter, Paul is speaking about laboring for the Lord, and he gives the example of building a building, that we don't bring God's kingdom, but rather we build for God's kingdom. And look at what Paul says. He says, no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, that person's work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. This idea of the new heavens and the new earth and there being continuity with what I do right now for Jesus is extremely important. It suggests that one day everything that I've done will pass through the fire, but only to purge it of sin and evil. And what I've done in faith what I've done in humble dependency on God will last into eternity. That Sunday school lesson that was prepared with just such prayerfulness and thought and care will last on into eternity. Perhaps some of the bigger things and grander things and more sparkly things will have been found to, in fact, be wood, hay and straw. We have to be careful how we build. We have to build with dependency on God. But what we do for God right here and now matters. 
Jesus said even giving a cup of water in his name would not go unnoticed. So the new heavens and the new earth have implications for our Christian ministry and service. But secondly, what we've seen about our having a renewed body that physically exists in a new heaven and a new earth has implications for our bodies. How we view them, how we treat them, what we do with them, how we respond to their needs and appetites. We hear a great deal about our bodies in the world at the moment, especially the idea that you can be born into the wrong body. But notice something of the Bible's high view of our bodies and what we've looked at today. Just a couple of things. Number one, what I so casually call my body is in fact the body given to me by God himself. He created it. Psalm 139, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Number two, as a person, I do have an inner part and an outer part, but I'm a unified whole. Uh, The inner Andrew would not be Andrew without my physical body. It would be a ghost. And my physical body without the inner me would equally not be Andrew. It would be a corpse. (laughs) I'm a unified whole. My physical body is an essential part of who I am. It's not just a shell for my spirit to live in. Yes, number three, my body is imperfect because it came into being in a world marred by sin. And so there are some people who are born with bodies that don't work correctly or minds that don't work correctly. Others have bodies or minds that have become damaged. All of us struggle with sinful desires that war within us. But, number four, God values the body that he gave me to such an extent that at the end of time it will be renewed and restored and exist forever. When I die, it won't be the real self in me that goes to heaven and my body goes to the grave. No, my entire person will be resurrected, restored, renewed. Exactly how that works is a mystery, as Paul says, and somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. But as one writer points out, we will not be disembodied spirits in the world to come but redeemed spirits in redeemed bodies in a redeemed universe. The Westminster Catechism of 1647 says that the self-same bodies of the dead, which were laid in the grave, being then again united to their souls forever, shall be raised up by the power of Christ. Self-same bodies very body that God originally created for me, this body will be raised eternal. I'm not quite sure in exactly what form, I'm not quite sure at exactly what age, but it will be recognizably me. You won't in heaven say, is that Tom Cruise? No, it will be Andrew. You will be able to recognize. I will recognizably be Andrew in heaven. And that's so wonderful to those who've perhaps lost children who uh, were born imperfect or perhaps you even have a special needs child right now. One day, one day, 
they will run to you and hug you and you will see them in the body that God intended them to have. Which brings us to number five. The self-same body will be raised to greater perfection than I've ever known. My renewed body will be perfect. Some of you may be familiar with a remarkable lady called Johnny Erickson Tada. At the age of 15, Johnny dived into a shallow lake and broke her neck, and she's been paralyzed in a wheelchair ever since. And she once wrote this. Somewhere in my broken, paralyzed body is the seed of what I shall become. The paralysis makes what I am to become all the more grand when you contrast atrophied, useless legs against splendorous, resurrected legs. I'm convinced that if there are mirrors in heaven, and why not, the image I'll see will be unmistakably Johnny, although a much better, brighter Johnny. As one writer puts it, inside your body, even if it is failing, is the blueprint for your resurrection body. You may not be satisfied with your current body or mind, but you'll be thrilled with your resurrection upgrades. With them, you'll be able to serve and glorify God and enjoy an eternity of wonders that he has prepared for you. My body will no longer have the limitations and the problems it has at the moment. I'll no longer struggle against the desires and the lusts that I battle with at present. A new heaven and a new earth, a renewed body on a renewed earth with Christ forever. How many of you have heard of the Japanese art called kintsugi? Kintsugi, in English, golden joinery, is the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery by mending the areas of breakage with gold, silver, or platinum. So a pottery bowl that has fallen and broken is not simply discarded, thrown away, put out with the rubbish. Instead, the artist carefully collects the pieces and joins them together with gold to make something that, in fact, becomes more beautiful, more precious, more valuable than it originally was. You can go on to Google and have a look at some of the images that are there. Kintsugi. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in all things he may have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, not by gold or silver or platinum, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I've quoted this too many times already in our series through Revelation, but remember Sam Gamgee's question at the end of The Lord of the Rings. 
He realizes that Gandalf is alive and he asks, is everything sad going to come untrue? Pastor Tim Keller says the answer of Christianity to that is yes, everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the little glimpse that we get today into all that you've prepared for us. Your word says that eye hasn't seen or ear heard, neither has it entered into the mind of man what you have prepared for those who love you. And yet you go on to say, yet you have revealed it in your word. And we just pray that as we continue over the next couple of weeks to look into this chapter, perhaps as we read it later um, after lunch, we ask, please, that you would give us an excitement to see you and all that you've prepared for us. Thank you for the the long story of creation and also of recreation, that you are the great salvage artist who comes down to restore men and women, us, to yourself. Thank you for what you've already done for us. Thank you for what what you are still going to do for us. Help us to live and act and serve and worship you in the light of that in this week to come. Because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.